This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Whenever someone goes missing, the people closest to them inevitably turn over their last interaction with them. Was there anything out of the ordinary? Did they seem different? Was there something they said that might offer up a clue as to what happened to them? Anne-Margaret Allen has been reliving her last conversation with her brother, Sammy, for the best part of a decade. The 27-year-old had been battling drug addiction for years when he phoned his older sister out of the blue one late night in October 2016. They spoke at length about his issues, about their childhood and about how they could work together to get Sammy out of the rut he was in. Sammy was technically homeless at the time, sleeping rough on the streets of Glasgow, and was open to the prospect of help. Almost too open, Anne-Margaret thought. For years, Sammy had resisted almost all efforts by his family to assist him, preferring to face his demons on his own. So the fact that Sammy was entertaining the idea of accepting help threw his sister a little. When they finally said their farewells, 
and Margaret couldn't shake the feeling that this wasn't just goodbye for now, but was goodbye for good. Seven years later, she's still searching for her little brother. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds, and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing. Sammy Townsley. Sammy was born in 1989 into a traveller family. His parents, Helen and William, had been travelling the country all their lives, never staying in one place for more than six months at a time. Anne-Margaret was four years Sammy's senior. Their sister Christine, who went by Kissy, was the eldest. We grew up in Scotland for the first four years of Sammy's life because when I was about eight, my mum and dad, they separated. Mum remarried and my dad remarried and we went to England. So even though we maintained very strong Scottish accents, part and partial due to the fact that we were always surrounded by, you know, our Scotch family. And we also had a good relationship with our father because even though it was the early 90s, we were quite modern because they co-parented, which was not the norm for gypsy traveller families at that time. So we spent most of our summers in Scotland with my dad and my dad's wife and were new little brothers from my dad's second marriage. And when we were with my mother and my stepfather, and he also had three children from a previous marriage, so we were a very big mixed family, lots of love, lots of laughs. The kids loved being on the move and having a tight-knit community around them everywhere they pitched up. They couldn't imagine life any other way. You were always surrounded, you were never alone even as much as you wanted to be alone sometimes there was we were always crowded wherever we went and that was just a completely normal thing for us that everywhere we went there was chaos but you know good good chaos but life on the road wasn't without its challenges particularly when it came to the children's education we were always moving from place to place we were never ever settled so it was always uh, campsites that where we could get peace to sort of go to school for a few weeks, which, you know, you just absorbed all the knowledge that you could in short periods. It was still a novelty to be in school. So we always enjoyed the education. It was something you appreciated because it wasn't going to be forever. There would be a situation where you were illegally camped and you needed to move on or there would be another situation where work dried up and there was no money, so you had to move on for work. It was never ever out of neglect or selfishness from parents. You always moved on from schools because of necessities in your way of life. We were always on the road and it, like looking back, it was a very hard life. It still is a very hard life for anyone that's doing it. Sammy and Anne-Margaret's parents went where the work took them. You would do the fruit picking 
at this day and age, there's a lot of, I suppose, migrant workers that do the farm work now. But for decades and decades, and it was always the gypsies. Like, the majority of it was gypsies in Scotland that did the raspberry picking in Blair Gowrie, um, the potato picking in St David's, you know, up at Wales, you know, in Wales. Uh, so you just would go from place to place seasonally to do all the farm work. And then probably around the 60s or the 70s, the men started to learn trades. So there would be scrap, you know, like collecting scrap metal. They would they would do that for extra money. And then there was um, garden services, garden working things. So you would just move from place to place you bumped into somebody and they said, oh, there's there's a farm here that's hiring, or because everything was word of mouth through the community, you know, there's a farm here that's hiring, or there's somebody there looking for an extra pair of hands. or So you moved on like that because most of the work was seasonal. Also as well, you had to coincide that with having a place to be settled and live. Some places would have work, but they would hate having gypsies or travellers in the community. So you couldn't do the work because you had nowhere to stay. Or vice versa, you had a lovely camp to stay, but no work. Growing up as travellers, Anne-Margaret, Sammy and the rest of the family were no strangers to prejudice. Before the days of the internet, people never knew like how severe the discrimination was, like... From any minute, somebody could come down, a group could come down and throw stones and be violent, uh, set fire to your caravan. And, you know, there was always that hatred. So that is why we had to travel in groups for safety and also for support because you, you needed each other. You couldn't survive on your own. Like, I believe that's true of the world in general, I think we're, we kind of believe now, you know, it's like me, 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 but it's just not true, it's never been true. We've never been built to be on our own. We're, we're built to be, I believe, and like as a traveller, it's ingrained in you, you're, you're made for community. One particularly violent incident from when they were very young is seared into Anne-Margaret's memory. We were in um, a place called Barrow and Furnace and we were just passing through. I'm not sure if it was the winter, if it was Christmas, I mean. I'm not sure if it was December, November or January, but I can remember the snow was severe and it was up to my knees. And uh, we were pulled next to a big factory because it looked a quiet place and we ended up staying about a week. And then one day, my stepfather went to try and find work and a group of teenagers came down and we were so scared. They were only teenagers looking back, but for us, they were so much older than us. And they came down and they started throwing these heavy stones and bricks at our caravan and we couldn't get out the door and there was nothing you could do. And they were just like surrounding us, calling us names, breaking our property. And it was like, you know, and that's your home, that's all you've got is that little tin caravan, that's all you've got. So if you break a window in it, in the winter, we're going to be freezing. 
And I remember just thinking the thought, how can people hate you and they don't even know you? And then my mother said, it's not their fault. It's like they're told to hate us. And I used to hate the fact that she had so much sympathy. I used to always think like, how can you love them? And she would say, but like, but Jesus Christ loves us. So she wouldn't teach us to hate, no matter what anybody did to us. Sammy was a happy child. Oh, just totally energetic from morning to night. Uh, He absolutely loved anything to do with karate, anything to do with kung fu, anything to do with wrestlers. Van Damme was like his ultimate hero. That's Jean-Claude Van Damme, martial artist and star of action movie classics like Bloodsport and Hard Target, a.k.a. The Muscles from Brussels. We had so many videotapes. He loved anything to do with, you know, like action and stuff. He loved music. He always had to have something going on. And he loved company. He absolutely loved a friend. So, you know, he just wanted to always be busy in conversation. Sammy had always had something of a devil-may-care attitude towards life. I mean, he never had any fear. He loved motorbikes as well, I forgot to tell you that. And he had, like, three or four motorbikes... I mean, he just had no fear. He would go up these big mountains and hills and he had concussion twice before he was 12. <laughs> and my mum was like, you can't have no more motorbikes. But he, so he always was like an all or nothing person. Sammy had no interest in being around kids his own age. He idolised his older stepbrother, Alec, and stuck to him like glue. Even though there was an age gap, he would try and like follow him, you know. And <laughs> like, but he liked him. A lot, uh, loved him, and he preferred the company of I would probably say older boys, because he always he always had this thing about him. He always wanted to grow up, you know. He always wanted to be. We would always tell him like slow down, but he always wanted to do what the teenagers were doing, and like sadly that proved detrimental to him, like at a very young age, because. And not to shed a negative light on him, which I would never want to do that. But like unbeknownst to us, he was dabbling in like marijuana and at a very, very young age, I never knew till he was in his early 20s before really I really knew the extent. But he was sort of experimenting with drugs at a really young age, like maybe 14, 15. And Margaret wishes more than anything that they had caught this behaviour early. He was like always a very active child. He always wanted to be doing something. So that was his personality, which was a fantastic cover-up for anybody having a lifestyle of addiction. Because when they're active, you just think they're being themselves. You know, you just think, oh, that's them. Just them being them. So that was like a fantastic cover-up for the fact that he was dabbling in... I don't even know what it was, but I'd say everything, you know? Uh, Whatever was available, whatever was offered to him. So, and we never knew, like as a family, we never knew. And that kind of set him on a bad path for the rest of his life. 
and not to make excuses at all. But there's so much information now around everything and then there just wasn't, there was no telltale signs that, you know, there was nothing. Even like from a mental health perspective, no understanding of, you know, signs to look out for. And like not to make excuses as a family, but we really never understood until he was in the thick of it, in the thick of addictions. Anne-Margaret met her husband when she was 18 and got married that same year. When her mum and stepdad decided to move the family back to Scotland, Anne-Margaret elected to stay in England. The family moved into settled accommodation, which brought with it a brand new set of challenges. So Sammy was introduced to new groups of company, not within the traveller community. And he was kind of making himself a bit of a typical teenager, where he was going, you know, he was going away for hours and my mum couldn't find him. And naive as it sounds, we kind of thought he was, oh, he might have been drinking or we never thought of anything else. You know, he might, oh, he might have a girlfriend or stuff like that. But eventually, some telltale signs started to appear. They start to lose weight and, and they start to get agitated and if anybody's ever been through it, like they'll know through phone calls and stuff, talking to my mum, she was worried about Sammy, she was really worried about him, he was getting into groups of friends that weren't good for him and he was very, very young, like 14, 15. It's just hell, it's actual living hell because it's like a slow death. You kind of prepare yourself every single day for the fact that a miracle might happen and they might get better or you're going to lose this person. But it's not like I'm going to lose them in two months or three months. It's like I'm going to lose them today and then that feeling is there for a decade. It's the slowest torment because you know they're going to die. No, There's no such thing as an 80-year-old drug addict. Sammy's experiments with drugs followed a well-worn trajectory. Marijuana, alcohol, then I think speed. Uh, I don't think cocaine was ever really his thing. It's very expensive as well. But I think he was very young, like 16 or 17, when he was offered heroin. So, I mean, it was like a very, very fast... Journey. I mean, basically, his whole entire youth, which was, I mean, I, I, I believe it really damaged his mental health severely because he never got a chance to grow up. I read this article about how people that take sort of heroin and things at that time in their life, like their frontal cortex doesn't develop the way it naturally should. And they're kind of stuck in this adolescent frame of mind. And it was just a study and I thought, it's not, it's true, I've actually seen it. Because he couldn't cope with normal adult situations, like filling in a forum was severely stressful for him. He kind of needed support through a lot of things. And like it made us very angry as a family because he got robbed of his life. He had so much to give and it's like this addiction comes along. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Before long, the differences in Sammy became undeniable. Like he was loving, but the drugs changed him and made him agitated, angry, like unkind, you know, he was... He was kind of robbed of who he was supposed to be. That's how I always felt with addiction. I was very angry. My family was very angry at him and then not at him because he was so young and then at yourself and, you know, and that kind of went on for like the better part of a decade. This journey of just, oh, he's well again, oh, he's not well again. And then he started to get damaged, like in his personality, you know, like his nature. It's just his whole, his whole attitude had changed and my mum was very angry with her, herself because she thought, have I never settled down, have I just kept him on the road, he's mixed with crowds, they've introduced him to things and... But he always was like an all or nothing child. Sammy stopped going to school. Then he stopped coming home altogether. The Townsleys would often go months without hearing from him. Sammy didn't have a fixed address. In recent years, he had been drifting between squats, shelters and sleeping rough on the streets of Scotland. Yeah, so he he moved about a lot. I had no idea the extent that he moved about. He was known to be around Clydebank, Dumbarton, Glasgow, Falkirk, you know, a lot of places. There were moments of light in the darkness. At various points, Sammy's family felt like he might be getting his life back on track. He would come and visit us, and he stayed with me in a little place in Durham for three months, and he was on the methadone programme. I used to take him to the chemist every morning. 
and he never even touched as much as a bottle of beer in that whole time because he never had any bad company and he had you know like peace in his life he felt at peace and then as soon as he went back to Scotland there was no time at all till he was back in bad habits I always wish that he would have stayed with us in Durham but anytime like something hard you know was hard for him anytime something was hard for him the the drugs and the lifestyle was a was like a fallback Sammy's absence wasn't due to a lack of love for his family. The long periods without contact weren't because he didn't want to be around them. In fact, it was the opposite. He never wanted to be around his family when he was in the thick of addiction. And he never wanted sort of his nieces and nephews, you know, to see him at his lowest. Due to Sammy's prior history of going AWOL for months at a time, it was difficult for his family to know when he was actually missing and when he was staying away because he was embarrassed. For like a long time, for years, he would go missing for months and a couple of times I like I contacted the police and then when I did contact the police, he had, you know, warrants out for his arrest because he would be doing a petty crime, he'd be doing theft and also driving without a licence to um, pay for some of his habits. So he said to me the last time, he said, please stop reporting me missing, he said, because every time you do, I get arrested. So I was so hesitant. Whenever Sammy pulled a disappearing act, his relatives would reach out to one another, trying to figure out who had been the last person to speak with him. Every couple of weeks, I thought, he'll contact someone, he'll contact someone. And we were always on the phone to each other saying, have you heard of him? Have you heard of him? And then we got these false reports of, oh, yeah, somebody's seen him here and somebody's seen him there. and But it was lies. People thought it was him and it wasn't him. and But that gave us a false, like as a family, me and my sister and my dad, that gave us like a false hope that he was okay. But it wasn't him. By the time January 2017 rolled around, no one in the family had seen or heard from Sammy for months. I said, this is ridiculous. How can we not have heard of him in all this time, like on an actual phone call? Or, like, physically, we've seen him, we're just relying on these, like, friends and that and acquaintances when they say that they actually have seen him. Anne-Margaret decided she couldn't wait in hope for her brother to resurface any longer. It was time to take action. So I said, I don't care, he's going to have to argue with me, I'm reporting a missing... As it turned out, her father, William, had had the exact same thought. And he said, you're not going to believe this. He said, I've just been into the police station where I am in Ayrshire and I've, all, I've done the same thing. So I reported him in Falkirk on the exact same day that my dad did in Irvine because we kept saying, this is not right, like, this is the longest he's ever gone. The authorities acted fast after Sammy was reported missing, putting out appeals for information and carrying out searches in all his known stomping grounds. Like, I believe that they did do their best because they took it serious straight away. I felt like they took it serious, you know. Um, I was really worried that they weren't going to take it serious because of... he wasn't your ideal candidate, if you will, for like a sympathy search. 
and so I was really worried about that and those worries were unfounded because I've got to say the police really did for what I could see everything that was in their power like with the evidence that they had they interviewed so many people uh, they followed up on every single lead that was given to them there was posters there was uh, you know there was like uh, a media appeal and that was that was done at the police station in Dumbarton the Ayrshire police where my, my dad reported a missing at my dad's address over in Ayrshire and I reported a missing with the Glasgow police and the Falkirk well I, I was in Falkirk and the last place he was sighted was in Glasgow so all those police together like Glasgow, Falkirk, Ayrshire they all kind of pulled together and did their bit I felt they did all that was in their power to do for um, those that first year and they, and every time you called them up with a lead, they always followed it. In fact, when Anne-Margaret and her family did some follow-up investigating of their own, they quickly learned the true scope of the police's investigation. The police did look into every possible lead, because when we, as a family, when me as an individual, went to Glasgow and I spoke to homeless people, and I would say, excuse me, like, do you, have you ever seen this man? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I was speaking to this officer and that officer, and they asked me if I'd see. And I thought the police were really doing their job because every single homeless person I spoke to, the police also spoke to them. Uh, and every single person at the train station I spoke to, the police had already spoke to them. Every single person at the shops, every single person at the shelters. And so... It was a comfort and a disappointment to know that the police were doing their job, but also that it came to nothing. Anne-Margaret and her husband had returned to Scotland in mid-2016 to be close to their family. But the reason we stayed in Scotland all that time was because of Sammy's disappearance. The first couple of years we stayed doing appeals... Me and my husband would drive to different cities every week, Dundee, Glasgow, Edinburgh, East Kilbride, just all over. And we would put, you know, flyers up and we would just canvas as much as we could. The wider areas, uh, I would take every opportunity like this one to just keep his story highlighted in the hopes that somebody would come forward with something. But everything came to a dead end, every single lead, and there were so many leads and everything came to an end. Throughout all of this, Anne-Margaret found herself endlessly replaying her last conversation with her brother in her head. He called me up and he was on the phone to me and he was upset, he was upset and he was telling me you know, like, I don't know if I want to live anymore. And, yeah, that was a really hard conversation. And I I said, where are you? And he was in Glasgow. And I said, can I come and get you? And he was like, no, tonight, he said. But in the morning, he, I says, can I come and see you in the morning? And he said, aye, you can come and see me in the morning. And he never had any, like, fixed address, which I never really knew that. I thought he had somewhere. Because I said, are you okay for tonight? And he said, yeah, I'm fine for tonight. And my husband 
told me to tell him, he said, tell him that I'll get him a flat, because there's loads of flats, like, you know, one bedroom. I'll get him a little flat, like if he's struggling with a deposit or anything like that. And, you know, we'll get him on his feet. And we'll get, so I told him, I said, Frank said, we'll get you a little place of that in the morning, if you want. And he was agreeing with me, but something was really off. You know when you can hear in somebody's voice that they're at a very, very low place? This call happened back in October 2016, a few weeks before the last known sighting of Sammy. And then he started talking to me about things from my childhood. And then he spoke about like spiritual things to me. He said to me, I feel like I'm bound. He said, I feel like I'm bound in chains. And I don't know how to get out of it. And I think like an addiction, people have a little bit of hope, whether it's for a year or 20 years, but then they come to a point where their hope is completely gone because they've fought, they've fought the fight for so long. And that's what it sounded like in his voice. He said, I'm bound in chains and I can't get out. And then I, I got really emotional because like, he said, like, sister, he said, you know that I love you. He says, you know how much, he says, you mean to me. And I felt like a goodbye. And that was very, very, it was the hardest phone call of my life. I, like, I don't know if you've ever had a situation or anybody who ever listens to this has ever had a situation where you're talking to someone who's gave up on life. It's not so much that they want to die, but that they don't want to live. And you can physically hear it in their voice. And I said, Sammy, please can I come and get you in the morning? And usually he would say, like, no, I'm fine, no, I'm fine, like, I've got stuff to do. And But this time he was saying, like, aye, that's fine. And I thought, he's been too easy. He's just been far too easy with me there. There was no fight in him. And so I was thinking in my head, it's like he doesn't want me to worry. And he was saying that to me, he said, like, I've lost, I've lost my hope. And so I talked to him about I talked to him about spiritual things for like a long time. We were on the phone for about forty minutes, and he said goodbye. I love you. You know I love you. And I said I I know you do. I love you. And as soon as the phone hung up, he said bye, sister. He says you're. And he said this one thing to me. He said Jim, you mean more to me than anything. And I was pretending not to cry, but I was crying because the whole phone call felt like a goodbye. And then. We said goodbye, and I fell to my knees after the phone call, and I prayed for four hours. And I never knew why I was praying. I never knew. I only knew months and months later when we couldn't find him. Looking back, I was like, I felt like I was called to intercede for his soul in those last hours. That phone call was the last conversation Anne-Margaret ever had with her brother. When Sammy's case got media coverage, there was speculation that his disappearance might have been a result of foul play. You know, there's another world that we don't see, um, like sort of in regards to people with addictions and, you know, people with homelessness in the streets. And it's not too far-fetched to say that there's, you know, there's criminality within that 
world and there was some information there were some people that said things and then they sort of retracted them if you will about seeing Sammy in vulnerable situations with possible members of criminal organizations and he looked in a vulnerable situation so I mean as an addict you're kind of thinking does he owe money to this day Sammy's father William believes his son was murdered Sammy had been in and out of prison he had moved in unsavory circles alongside dangerous people it wasn't a stretch to imagine a scenario where Sammy had gotten on the wrong side of the wrong person and the worst had happened. Because it's never happened in the community before. Where people have been killed, people have been murdered, people have committed suicide, but we've, Sammy's the only one that's ever went missing and never turned up for as long a period as this. Sammy and his dad were close. No matter how bad things got, Sammy would always eventually resurface and give William a call. The fact that he hasn't has led William to the conclusion that the worst has happened. The police took William's theory seriously and they talked to all of Sammy's known acquaintances. All those leads came to nothing, unfortunately. As hard as things were for the Townsleys in the aftermath of Sammy's disappearance, they were overwhelmed by the support they received from the wider traveller community. People were sharing the posts and then I was getting messages from people like, if you need me to go here, if you need me to go there. I mean, we had like family members, they know that we were going out canvassing and people like were messaging saying, can I get some flyers, I'll take them there. Oh, I know a place where, where he used to live. I'll go and talk to them and everyone pulled together. Like I've got to say, his whole family pulled together, but the wider community was as helpful as they possibly could be. And people would say to me, like, if you need anything, you know, if you need me to drive you here or there, or is there anything you need? And even today, like seven years, seven years gone by, even today, if I bump into someone, they'll say, like, have you had any news yet? You know, like, even seven years later, they're always, they're always, um, it's at the forefront of people's mind because it's never happened in the community before. People have been killed, people have been murdered, people have committed suicide, but we've, Sammy's the only one that's ever went missing and never turned up for as long a period as this. So it's not something that happens really to very many people in the world where where an adult where an adult just goes missing when someone like sammy goes missing a person with a long history of mental illness and addiction there's always one difficult question that has to be asked is there a possibility that they may have taken their own life in sammy's case recent events meant that this was a scenario the family had to consider there is that possibility because, and the reason there's that possibility is because Sammy had a suicide attempt uh, and he was actually found in the water and he survived and he was taken to hospital. And twice, twice he was taken out of the water. Once was 
through his own admission, like a cry for help, and the second time was, you know, that he never wanted to live anymore. So we know that that's where he would go, is to the water. And we always said, like, oh, I'm worried in case he goes back to the Clyde, through Glasgow, the water through Glasgow. And we asked them to look in the water, and they did look in the water, and they never found him. And they found so many other people, and they never found him. So we can't figure out how his body would just completely disappear. Until she had reason to believe otherwise, Anne-Margaret held onto the belief that Sammy was still alive. Then, a few weeks after he was officially reported missing, there was a sighting. That was a young woman, I believe, who saw him at the train station. And, yeah, she must have been a very... You know, a very thoughtful person that she took the time to call the police and say there's somebody here and they just look vulnerable. I think she probably picked up on that his situation was dire. Uh, and so, yeah, she had, I think he was asking for money to get on the train. So we kind of thought there was a possibility that he got on a train. And she did, she did contact me personally through, because I set up a page called Find Sammy Townsley that anybody is on Facebook that anybody can contact. Sammy has now been missing for seven years. The authorities are no longer searching for him. The media attention has gone away. For his family, it's important that they do what they can to keep his memory alive. On his birthday, we'll get together and, you know, we'll, like, say prayers and we'll celebrate his birthday. And we usually do that by going into Glasgow and just going for like a meal, like just going for a meal and going for a walk about the last place that he was seen and just be like very, very small. Like sometimes, some years it's just me and my sister and my dad. Other years it's more siblings. And we raise money, we try and raise money for homeless shelters in Glasgow because they were very helpful to Sammy. So we try and use use it for good. Just recognise him, you know, in those little in those small ways. Just recognise that it's his birthday, recognise that he's never ever going to be forgotten. Anne Margaret's a realist. She understands that the odds of her brother turning up alive and well at this point are slim. But she's still holding out hope for closure. People say to us, oh, there's hope, there's hope. Nobody recognises our family's grief and loss. They always say, oh, you don't know, no news is good news. And that's the farthest thing from the truth. Any news at this point would be the best thing in the world. And if you know that he's been murdered, don't think that that news would be unwelcome. That news at this point after seven years would mean the world to us to know what happened to him because we've no peace, we've no rest without the knowledge of what happened to him. So please don't think that not telling us is going to bring up old hurt because it won't. The hurt's always there and please don't think that it's going to make us sadder because nothing is sadder than not knowing what happened to your loved one. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. 
If you know what happened to Sammy, or you remember seeing someone like him on or after October the 17th, 2016, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Sammy Townsley before listening to this episode, you still could help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured in the series. The series is also made with the help of Missing People, a charity who offers support to the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you have been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Anne Margaret and her family hope that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.